Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. We hope everyone is having a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in with the both of us. If this is the first time, check out all of our content. Go to FocusedCompounding.com where Jeff writes about investing ideas. Uh, check out our YouTube. We have a bunch of videos on there. Um, and then, of course, hit that subscribe button on the podcast side of things. And follow me on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is probably the best uh, way to get uh, in contact with us. Um, people DM me questions that we pull for the podcast. And the best way to do that is through Twitter. So in today's podcast, we are going to continue with our capital allocation series. Um, author Jacob McDonough. Uh, so graciously sent us a PDF copy of the book and we've been going through it. I redact a lot of parts of the book because I don't want people to feel like they can just watch our videos without buying the book. So go buy the book, go buy the book, go buy the book. It's a great book. Um, Jeff read it three times when we were on one of our research trips because he ran out of other things to read. Uh, so go buy the book. I put the link in the description. So. Um, today we're going to talk about Sun Newspaper and Blacker Printing Company for about two seconds okay. because there's not a lot to say about it. Um, and then we're going to talk about one of my favorite uh, ones to learn about, Illinois National Bank. Mm -hmm. And for everybody listening, I'm from Illinois. Don't say Illinois. I know there's okay. an S there. I don't know why the S is there, but Illinois. Illinois. Illinois, uh, which was in Rockford, which yes. is about... 30 to 40 minutes away from where I'm from. Okay. When I pinpoint to people in Dallas, like if you say, oh, where are you mm -hmm. from? If they're familiar with the suburbs of Chicago, I say I'm from a small town that's in between Elgin and Rockford, Illinois. Oh. And I actually, one of my childhood friends is now the chief of uh, the Rockford Police Department. So there you go. Oh. Mob ties. They're going wow. deep. <laughs> um, Sun Newspaper and Blacker Printing Company. Uh, not a lot to say about this. It was pretty immaterial to Berkshire's book value at the time, pretty mm -hmm. immaterial in general. I think a lot of this was Buffett's been a fan of the publishing business newspapers. Um, so I think for him, this was just kind of like a cool prized possession, but there wasn't really too much to say about it, which so, is why in the book, it's like right. a page. So it's local weekly newspaper, right? In the Omaha area. Um, it, there's a daily newspaper there at the time still, I guess still is. Um, and he couldn't buy that one. He wanted to buy a newspaper and, uh, this paper did eventually, uh, win for the boys town, uh, article that he story that he suggested to them. So it's featured in, uh, books about Buffett a lot, uh, mm -hmm. the sun. Yeah. But not financially relevant. Yeah. And if you listen to the snowball during this time period and what I told Jeff, what I'm doing is. I'm listening to the snowball and going through each period when we're like going over the figures and everything. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool and just kind of going through his life. Um, this was about the time when he met Carol Loomis, right? Who was uh, a journalist herself. And Buffett, you know, said, "Oh, if I didn't go into investing, I would have gone into journalism. Newspapers have been a very big uh, part of his life." Where they even said he would have dreams sometimes that he missed his paper route as a boy and stuff like that mm -hmm. but like as an adult um so yeah let's see so they have the combined investment in sun blacker printing and gateway underwriters 
is a little over $1 per share of Berkshire Hathaway and earns something less than 10% per share. We have no particular plans to expand in the communication field. That was 1969. Yeah, because in his letter partners, he lumped those all together under other assets or something like that. Unconsolidated. Yeah. Yeah. So Illinois National Bank, sometimes referred to as the Rockford Bank, Mm -hmm. um, in 1968, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway annual report, Buffett or somebody else, but really Buffett. Um, on April 3rd, 1969, Berkshire Hathaway Inc. acquired 81,989 shares out of a total of 100,000 shares outstanding of the common stock of the Illinois National Bank and Trust Company of Rockford, Illinois, at a cash price of $190 per share. They also have made a tender offer to acquire the remaining outstanding shares at the same cash price, uh, 1968. And if you go back and Listen to this. So uh, the CEO, Eugene, uh, what was that? Abeg? Uh, how do you pronounce his, his name? I don't know. Eugene Abeg? I don't know. He wanted to sell the bank. Right. And yeah, Well, they were going to sell the bank, yeah. 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 And yeah, But he yeah. was super gung-ho on selling to the right person. And this, well, I guess, they basically re- had a deal to sell to the wrong person. Huh? I mean, he had in place it was going to be sold. Yeah. And he didn't like what they were saying now. Exactly. Right. They weren't going to let him. I think Buffett bid a million dollars less. And he went with Buffett because he felt like he was going to be the right person Mm -hmm. to partner with because he obviously was going to stay on. Yeah. Um, And at the time, too. So uh, Illinois National Bank, it was a one branch bank. There was a law in Illinois, as there was in uh, many states in the United States at that time. uh, a no branch rule uh-huh. so literally a bank branch is not the headquarters and in some states there this continued even to the point of atms where there were some courts that banned atms that were more than like a few feet from the uh, main office of the bank and stuff so they had uh, laws against it illinois had laws against it actually just reading a book recently about a bank in illinois that failed and a big um uh, possible culprit from that is that they weren't able to open other branches in Illinois and they did a lot of investing outside of the state and stuff like that. So that helps explain why they had so many deposits in one branch, right? And it also helps explain why they bought so many securities instead of uh, making certain loans. In 1969, he wrote, this bank had been built by Eugene without addition of outside capital from 250000 of net worth and 400000 of deposits in 1931 to $17 million of net worth and $100 million of deposits in 1969. Um, uh, and what's fascinating is if you like do an inflation adjust, mm-hmm. like that's a pretty big bank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty big, big bank. bank. And uh, Jacob does that where he calculates it for the per branch basis because it was one location. And that's the part that's really impressive about some banks back then. Mm-hmm. So that's the efficiencies that you see here. Because um, he gets into that of how big that would be in inflation adjusted terms. It would be bigger than basically any banks are today on a per branch basis. And that's pre all sorts of computer things and stuff like mm-hmm. that that are common now, you know, and ATMs and things like that. So it's actually having to do a lot of work um, for... Uh, I mean, labor intensive work. Yeah. They said that he would carry around like a thousand bucks in his pocket at always and cash checks on the weekends. And he was just always working, always getting after it. I actually looked. So in the snowball, they talked about how there's like a, like a $10 bill. 
with his name or with right. his face yeah, on it. About, on eBay, yeah. I found one for oh, like a hundred something dollars. Okay. So I'm going to buy some. Yeah. The so, price is going to skyrocket because people, I got to buy before uh, this podcast comes out. But I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So literally, uh, you know, um, this bank must have had a charter from a, a while back. Um, uh, banknote meant, mo- you know, money was put out by specific banks originally. And so it is true that there are notes out there in the world um, that people collect and stuff now that were literally issued by certain banks and he could have his uh, face on and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jacob goes into it. Total deposits were ninety nine point one million in 1968 with demand deposits representing fifty seven point seven million of the total. Do you want to explain what demand deposits are? Yeah, so this would have been like checking accounts, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't remember in that year what the rules would have been, but but those may have had to be very limited or, or not bearing any interest at the time. Um, and then the other ones would have been more like CDs, probably. Which are like more time deposits and stuff. Like yeah. That, which that, you pay more on as a bank. Right. That's become more blurred over time um the distinction between those because people ask about that you know uh what can be paid on a checking account and a savings account and those things uh but you would have been able to pay little or no interest on a checking account a demand deposit something that people could pull immediately versus a cd which would have been locked up for a period of time yeah he actually goes into it so in 1968 uh demand deposits represented 58 percent of the deposits and mm-hmm. time deposits were 41.8 percent yeah, so sometimes we talk about deposits and so things like um, loan to deposit ratios and that sort of thing. Um, that can be a little misleading because what is the nature of your deposits? If your deposits are all CDs that we're talking about, um, then that's very different than if they were all checking accounts. Um, and in terms of just being able to, you know, you'd have pretty high um, rates if you rolled it over and when interest rates were higher and things like that, and mm-hmm. the money could go away quickly. So uh, it's really those customer deposits. Um, a thing that I look at a lot is uh, some form of an account uh, that is tied to a business or a person who's actually a customer of the bank in some way. So as opposed to CDs and, and sometimes things like um, also money on deposit from other banks and governments sometimes too, I would exclude. Mm-hmm. And over time, it shifted because in 1978, uh, demand deposits represented 31.4% um, and time deposits were 68.6%. I have a suspicion. I don't think he gets into it. My suspicion is that that isn't a choice of the bank so much. Um, that does save some money and things like that. And they were growing. But um, I suspect that has to do with interest rates. So interest, I mean, people didn't realize it, but 1968 interest rates are already rising and inflation pressures are pretty high. But people aren't really caught on to that. By 1978, it was pretty extreme to the point where people would be um, wanting a lot of interest. Um, So I suspect that might have been a a taste of customers that they wanted um, they were less likely to want demand deposits at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you look at the the asset side of the balance sheet, so in 1968, uh, it was 117 million, 47, we'll call it, million was in loans. Right. But 27 million was in government bonds and call it 18 million was in, you know, other form of municipal uh, bonds as well. So pretty conservatively financed. Yeah. So uh, or what they're doing. 
Right. So very conservatively financed that way. That's a very liquid balance sheet, right? Um, and a very low percentage of loans in relative to deposits like we just talked about. I mean, the loans making up as a percentage of the balance sheet are less than 40% or something. Um, but on the other hand, um, that there also is a factor here that maybe the difference between the treasury securities, the yield on them and the yield on loans wouldn't have been as big as it is now. I would suspect that it's true. Um, You're saying like if that was in the present? Yeah. So well, that because yeah, rates are so low, right? Yes. So um, if we're talking about we're talking about 1968, what year? Are we yeah, 1968, 1969. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the yield curve was and things like that but i would say that um it was probably flatter and higher um and that there hadn't been uh, people were less concerned about changes in interest rates 1978 things change because then there was a big move in interest rates but um from world war ii to almost that period 1968 um it, the yield curve was a little different and people weren't so afraid to lend longer and in fixed rates and things like that as compared to later periods. Yeah. I'm trying to see, I think he goes into the spread a little bit. Okay. I think he gives the figures. Let's see. Maybe not. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, could see me scrolling through okay but it's a great chapter yeah yeah no oh yeah so he has cost of funding right here okay and then the net interest margin all right so but the all-in cost of funding in 1968 was 1.5 and their net interest margin is 4.7 percent okay um so that probably is um income from earning assets yes 0.2 percent Right. Okay. And so that's with taking into account that those are both loans and um, securities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I don't know the tax uh, issue there at the time, but they held a significant amount of treasury. So that would be possibly less attractive than municipal um, things on a, after a tax uh, adjusted basis. So banks talk sometimes about that. Um, so, but I don't, Thing. I mean, but taxes are a lot lower now, so uh, I, I don't. I, it's still a much higher yield, yeah. But if you look, if their cost of funds was that amount, and I'm thinking that they're paid virtually nothing on the checking accounts, um, then the CDs may have actually been several percent. Um, you know, so people may have been getting two or three percent on their money that they weren't putting out for that long. Mm. So fairly short-term money to take it in on retail. Um, may have been that high, two or three percent, and then loans were over six percent. And this was, you know, this company was another example of Buffett investing in a business that uses some form of other people's money, mm -hmm. right? So you look at the insurance industry, and we went over that in the last uh, podcast where we talked about this. And then now he's using a bank where you know you take a deposit and they yep. lend out those deposits to earn income. Um, so I thought that part was fascinating because. You know, that's just what Buffett likes, the types of businesses that he likes. Yeah, and this is the period that Buffett's referring to when, if you ever hear him talk about the model for banking, had been borrow at three, uh, lend at six. You know, that's what we're talking about mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, net losses as a percentage of loans, something that we care a lot about, very low. 
um, yes. in their history as well. I know at one point they had some, yes, yeah, so it says did. bank experience net losses on loans outstanding of 3.35% and 3.1% in 1943 and 1947. Right. Um, but I guess more towards the recent time when Buffett was looking at it, it was basically like nothing. Right. They'd been in basically nothing for a long time. Yeah. This is actually kind of like what hindsight being 2020, the quintessential bank. If people want to learn about a bank that Jeff would be interested in, it's like this bank, like the characteristics. That right. So very low loan charge offs. Yeah. Um, high deposits per branch. Mm -hmm. um, a great no manager. Yeah. Very, you know, very conservative in what yeah. they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. So you have a great manager who's there for a long time. The bank was not growing particularly fast, actually. If you look, that is the one thing that may have been a little disappointing to Buffett is how slowly it grew but it's able to pay out dividends and things so that wouldn't matter that much. It didn't need to retain all that capital. So when you control a bank like that, it's not a problem. Another share, you know, shareholders owning a bank like this, the problem would be the temptation um, for it in the modern era to buy other banks, to buy other stuff, to, to figure out what to do because it would be generating too much um, earnings relative to how fast it was growing its balance sheet. I've talked about that in some write-up that I did. That's an important thing to look at with banks. Um, really you can you can see how high the return equity is and that gives you an idea combined with their payout ratio of how fast they can grow the balance sheet and whether those two things are in line over time so if you're looking at a bank that has a 15 percent return equity and you think you're going to be getting you know two-thirds payout as you know a dividend um, which many banks pay out that can't be matched with also high growth for long you know and when i read write up sometimes people don't um, they kind of say, what's the standard payout for a bank? What, what do I think this thing can grow? You know, the, over in the long run, those things have to match up. And so in this case, controlling the bank was an advantage for him. Mm -hmm. He goes into the valuation. He says Berkshire paid $190 per share to acquire Illinois National plus $2 per share to an investment bank for services rendered in the transaction. This valued the bank at $19.2 million in 1969. The bank earned $2 million before gains or losses on securities that year, which was a yield of 10.3% based on Berkshire's purchase price. And the 10-year treasury bond was at 7.7% at the time. Yeah, so better pre-tax yield than the treasury bond, yep. Um, let's see. And then talking about like, it being a one branch bank and how much you know high deposits per branch mm. um illinois national was unique in terms of the deposits per branch at the time of the berkshire acquisition the bank had deposits of 99.1 million all at a single location this figure would be approximately 727.9 yeah. million in 2019 adjusted for inflation yeah so that's um compared to some some banks that you might find like if you just looked at your local bank or something that could be 15 times the size of some local banks um and it's and he gives it comparisons to some of the biggest banks um on a per branch basis mm -hmm. and if you exclude just a few strange banks it's you know three or more times in inflation adjusted terms um some of the most efficient banks that way in terms of gathering deposits and that's amazing when you consider you know the internet and i mean you, you could open accounts uh, with basically not even going into a branch right now um and obviously there's all sorts of things you know with uh we've talked about core processors before and things like that so there's all sorts of things technology um that have made it a lot easier uh and as well as mass marketing stuff like um, different ways that you can advertise to bring in a lot more money um i mean even just the the 
demand deposits they had are a huge amount for one bank yeah and that's why you like one branch banks or you know i guess like not a lot right because of all the efficiencies that that come with that well i mean i like them if they're making money that's pretty impressive if you just have one location right now and you're mm -hmm. making money yeah if you look at most banks that are very small their problem is insufficient scale mm -hmm. so until you scale up to a certain point you don't have low enough um uh expenses yeah yeah he says the bank's efficiency ratio um, it improved from 34.9% in 1968 to 21.8% in 1978. So we should make massive. The, I mean, if that was today, it would make it one of the most efficient banks oh, in the yeah. country. Yeah. A bank I that we follow that is we'd consider to be one of the most efficient RAND banks in America. What's their efficiency ratio? Like low 30s maybe? Yeah, some, some banks have Something managed like to yeah um, get around there, you know, but, but I don't know if they could be maintained for long. Um, that's also a, the efficiency ratio is comparing it to, um, relative to revenue, um, which is a little bit, uh, I like to also look at what it is relative to their earning assets or their deposits. You know, they're basically the same thing. Um, because yeah, obviously interest rate environments and things like that would change it. There's also been some accounting changes, but that's a very efficient bank either way. And if you did the other calculation, I'm sure you'd find the same thing. Um, that's just so if you calculate what their their expenses would be on their total amount of deposits, uh, you know, um, that gives you an idea of like what it really costs them to fund things, mm -hmm. you know, because banks always talk about their cost of funding and their actual financial cost. And that's I think when you read about the press and stuff, that's kind of what they talk about as if if a bank can borrow, if a bank can borrow at one percent, it can turn around and lend at two percent and make money. But it can't do that because it has over one percent in other expenses. Um, that aren't interest expenses. So having a low number that way is very helpful, right? It, one reason it's very helpful, which you can see with this bank, uh, is that you can make money while making loans that aren't necessarily very high risk, right? Because then you can have lower yielding loans still make you plenty of money. In this case, they could have just bought, if you look at them, uh, they obviously could have made some money just by buying securities. They didn't have to make any loans and mm -hmm. they still would have made some money. Yeah, if you're interested in how to value a bank, I just uploaded um uh, the gannon archives the lost archives jeff back in 2010 when he went through the intrinsic value how to calculate that of a bank and basically you kind of just went over that but it's a short 10 to 15 minute podcast where you just walk through it and i thought it was pretty well said and easily uh it's easy to listen to for people to learn how to do that um uh, so from 1968 to 1978 Deposits compounded at 6.5% from 99 million to 185 million. Which loans. is probably less than the local economy. And I was going to say, that's yeah. not that's not like crazy growth. <laughs> no, I it probably shrunk relative to the local economy at that time. But the amount of penetration in the area uh, was probably very high to start with. How, like how far they must have been pulling deposits from, you know, the, how far out people must have been. Um, coming in uh, to deposit with them and everything must have been pretty big by then anyway. So. Operating income went from 6.4 million to 15.7 million. Yeah. And then you need to retain all those earnings. Correct. So if you look, because you I control don't, it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if you look, do they have information on how much the assets in that? Yeah. He, oh, let's see. So of the bank of Berkshire at the time. Well, or you could have the return equity. I could do either one. Yeah, so return equity in 1978 was 16.8%. Uh, and what was it in the beginning of the period? 9.9%. Okay. So, and how much did it grow by? It grew by 6 to 
uh, total equity in 1968 was 16.8 million. 1978 was 25.9. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some complications yeah. to that, but basically if you take the return on equity over the period and subtract out the growth rate, that much of book value at the time had to have been paid out to Berkshire. Dividends. Yeah. There's no other way to do that unless you were deleveraging the whole time. And, you know, doing like this conglomerate structure or whatever, it's not like being double taxed, just shipping it up to the parent company and then Buffett's able to do different things. Correct. And he would have kept this bank if not for a change in legislation that meant you had to either be in banking or in insurance. You can be in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a holding company. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think it's interesting that he kept the insurance company over... Is it because there's more scale involved, you think? Yeah. An insurance company could grow a lot faster um, and become something really big. Uh, he ended up doing a lot of banking by buying other banks. You know, mm-hmm. it took many years, but he did buy other banks. Um, but that is the hard thing in banking, I think. I think there are more, uh, on good banks, there is more restriction on how fast you could grow. You you could theoretically get an insurance operation out pretty fast, Yeah. And I think insurance is his first love and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to find. Yeah, so I, I have the letters where they would write about okay. Illinois National Bank, but I thought this was interesting. So he says, we purchased uh, the Illinois National Bank in March 1969. It was a first-class operation then, just as it had been ever since Gene Begg opened the doors in 1931. Since 1968, consumer time deposits have quadrupled. Mm-hmm. That income has tripled. And trust department income has more than doubled, while costs have been closely controlled. Our experience has been that the manager of an already high-cost operation, I I think I missed the O there, frequently is uncommonly resourceful in finding new ways to add to overhead, while the manager of a tightly run operation usually continues to find additional methods to curtail costs, even when his costs are already well below those of his competitors. So again, yeah. there's a lot of efficiencies. On that's the like my side favorite. That's my favorite Buffett quote. Well, because yeah. that's exactly exactly. I'm like, well, this is Jeff. Think this is how exactly how Jeff thinks about banks. Yeah, and, and insurers too. You know, but both of them. I, I've said it before that, and you can look at the return on equity and everything. The big issue in banking and to some extent insurance is you. Um, there are banks that earn that 15% return on equity, like you're seeing here, you know, in the midpoint there, in the middle of those years. And there are banks that are earning 5%. The banks that are earning 5% don't go out of business. They stay in business. They might be earning 5% paying all out in dividends and, and not growing, but you don't get rid of them, really. They'd have to do something dumb to get out of the business. Um, but they can just, the difference between those two things can just be inefficiency. And that's where we talk about the commodity aspects of it, where people say, like, is an insurance a commodity, is a banking a commodity? There can be, you have a pretty good control over certain costs. But the problem is that a lot of these are not, um, they're they're very systematic, whether you want to say cultural, or you want to say how many branches you have, or what systems you use, or what distribution you use, what kind of customers you have, whatever. They're built up over a period of time of how expensive it is to source the business that you have, whether it's to make the loans that you have, or to, to bring in the deposits. Um, and it can be really different. Just compare a bunch of banks in terms of that you think are really similar in terms of how much they spend on non-interest expense um, versus uh, their competitors, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we net it out against fees. If you take that out, sometimes it's even bigger because you realize that the way that some banks are getting to look like they're fairly efficient 
is that they're they're bringing in a fair amount of fee income, whereas there are others that bring in very little fee income, and that actually have very low expenses. Um, there's you know some stuff that they can't control that much, but there's lots of stuff they can internally control. I, I in the write up of Frost where we did that report on them, I wanted to point out to people. So we took a very long term uh, history of it. How much their occupancy cost as a percentage of assets had declined over time. And it's really significant to the point where it was unacceptably high, you know, in the late 80s or something. And then by 2010, it's really low. And that makes a huge difference because you just think about what's the Fed funds rate and what's things like that. What are you paying on your um, deposits? But really, if you're paying, are you paying 0.1% or are you paying 0.5% in rent, you know? Mm-hmm. And, that makes it of your of your assets that makes a huge difference and over a long period of time if your deposits are rising a lot faster than your rent you know either the square footage that you have or the price per square foot then you're going to have a lot of success and in that case that bank basically just grew um you know deposits per branch by maybe like five percent or so a year um forever and that's enough to get, gain some efficiencies um, versus if you grew that same amount, but you were increasing your square footage all the time, increasing your employee count. You know, if you, if you grow deposits faster than you grow employees, and then you grow branches and all of that, then there's efficiencies from that. Mm-hmm. And there are big economies of scale in banking and in insurance. Um, up to a point, they're really big ones in banking. Uh, I don't think that they're really big ones in like being a trillion dollar bank versus a hundred billion versus a 10 billion. But there are big ones between being a ten million, hundred million, and um, billion and, and ten billion dollar bank. Yeah, it just it gets hard when to keep that loan demand up and continuing to make you know the the right loans and well, they the challenge. I mean, they couldn't right? do that here. They own securities, mm-hmm. and you know, I mentioned Frost. Frost hasn't been able to do that. Um, there was a bank we spoke to that had the same problem a long time ago, didn't have that problem. But basically, now that seems to be maybe a problem that's more, I noticed it more in CNI um, lately, that since 2008, there hasn't been enough demand in CNI to um, for banks that are bringing in a lot of business deposits to then lend it all out. But you can talk to them and some of them will say, you know, well, in the 90s, if I was dealing with a bunch of businesses and I had... X amount of deposits, I usually had plenty of demand to make good loans for that same, you know, one X. So basically I could move money around between them that it wasn't a case where everyone wanted to save and no one wanted to borrow. But right now they're often in a situation where there's twice as much uh, of their businesses are wanting to have big savings at the bank instead of big borrowings. And so it doesn't even out and that makes the business a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what happened? I know you talked a little bit about it, but the Rockford Bank, they eventually spun it out to shareholders. They spun it out to shareholders because of the um, uh, regulation change. Yeah, regulation change. I should go uh, visit it next time I'm home. Yeah. I wonder what they're doing today. I wonder what the story is. Did they end up? Well, I guess you could look it up about who acquired them and all that. I mean, the laws did change so that uh, mergers between interstate, uh, across state lines were allowed. Um, so I assume that some people bought up all the banks in um, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. It but isn't. Yeah, it's an interesting feature of the time um, because the two things that are really noticeable about it are uh, to people looking at it today, right? The interest rate situation. So 
long period of much more stable rates. So people weren't worried about borrowing for long periods of time and fixed rates and things like that. Banks were worried about lending that way. And also this idea of just uh, having only one location. Mm-hmm. But that was true in many different states at the time. Um, the size of this bank was still extreme for being in that. And more than that, it was extreme for not seeming like they're doing much. Um, some of the other banks that had one location actually did a ton of um, business with other banks, were more like, I guess you'd say like money center things and stuff like that now. So they had one location, but um, they were involved in a lot more complex stuff than what uh, Rockford was doing. He was on the board of, I think, an Omaha bank too at yes. this time. I wish she didn't really, Alice Schroeder didn't talk too much about this situation in the book. I feel like no. I've heard Buffett talk more about it just from going through all the archives of the Berkshire meetings. And yeah, and it's but significant. Like three pay, couple pages. That's why Jacob's book is so good. Capital Allocation, The Financials of a New England Textile Mill, <laughs> 1955 to 1985. That's the book's name. Good job. Um, I would have brought my copy, but it's a little bit more marked up, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I th- it's it's significant. It was significant to Berkshire at that time. Uh, na- you know, National Indemnity and, and Illinois National were really important. And I also think it's important because it, taught him about banking and things like that uh i think people overlook and we covered it here before he made the investments that are famous in um insurance you know when he bought into geico later on he had already owned geico but when he bought it for berkshire um when he bought washington post and when he did any of his banking investments like wells fargo and all those uh he had actually owned a hundred percent of a bank, an insurer, mm-hmm. uh, a newspaper. He ran these things himself. You know, he he had them as part of his conglomerate. So he was an expert in these kinds of things before he bought into them. So that's a real circle of competence that way. Yeah. Very true. Warren Buffett, I hope he's listening to this. I hope he's watching, <laughs> going down memory lane with the both of us. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, Jeff and I, on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Thank you again so much to Jacob McDonough. Yeah, this is one of the best book. chapters in the book. Is Great in chapter. the uh, description. I'm also going to put the uh, part of the annual letters where Buffett would write about this. First, it was Ken Chase, uh, aka uh, Cough Cough, as I said right here, Warren Buffett. But then it was uh, Buffett coming out and saying that it was him later on. Uh, so definitely go read it. We love, we talk a lot about banks here. I actually created a bank investing playlist on YouTube. Okay. So check all of that out. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit that subscribe button both on the podcast and the YouTube side of things. If you have any questions on investing, when we do our free form podcast, I pull them and we answer them. So DM them to me at Focus Compound on Twitter, or you can email them to info at focuscompounding.com. Just put in the subject like podcast uh, questions or something like that, and I'll cue them. I'll thank you so much for tuning with the both of us. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care.